Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is Tuesday, June 23rd, and we are continuing on in our study of Hebrews. Um, finished up last week through chapter 8, but we do a quick um, recap in chapter 8 and continue on through chapter 9, verse 14 getting into some good things. There was some good discussion there, some quiet moments, so just bear with us because I had to pass out some uh, uh, materials to people. And if you're curious about those materials, um, please uh, look at the um, Lutheran Study Bible from CPH, from Concordia Publishing House. There's the Lutheran Study Bible, and in the notes for this section on Hebrews, you see these different... um, references. And I'll try and put those references in the description for y'all to see uh, if you have that. Uh, if if not, I'd recommend going out and buying it uh, because there are great visual aids and uh, different um, articles in the Lutheran Study Bible for uh, your benefit. They, it's fantastically done. Uh, the best study Bible I've ever seen but I'm not biased at all. (laughs) Anyways, so without further ado, uh, we have the Bible study for today, Hebrews chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 14. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, through your only Begotten Son, Jesus Christ, you overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life. We humbly pray that we may live before you in righteousness and purity forever. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Okie dokie. So we are in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 now? Unless y'all want to spend a little bit more time in 8. Because 8 is, is you know, there. I pushed through it because I wanted to get through it. But if, if there are some things that, that, that y'all thought about over the week that you want to discuss, please let me know. I mean, is there anything... Anything that was bugging you about what we talked about last time? Everything pretty straightforward. Everything good? Yeah. <laughs> well. All right then. Well, just as a, I'll still do a recap, and if something pops up in your mind, you can let me know, um, and we can talk about it, because I only was this next part. Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, it's building on what we've gone over already, but, you know, I wanted to really spend some time. I've only planned on getting through chapter 9, verse 14, so we'll do our best to just kind of uh, take our time with it. Uh, but if we need to press on, we'll, we'll press on. I do have handouts for y'all, though, because it is going to be pertinent, so um, while I'm, why don't we go ahead and do that, passing these things out. So these are, you'll see that they're collated here. Uh, They're not somewhat safe yet. I'll give you these first. You see there's like 
talking a lot about what the temple looked like, the tabernacle, uh, and extras good, uh, hope so, and then go past this out too. There's these, there's these, alright, so these are just like visual aids to help us with what, what is being talked about, because if you're like me, you've probably seen like Indiana Jones and the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and things like that. You see, I mean, that, that kind of gets it right in terms of like a glimpse into the magnitude of what the Ark was, but um, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, so let me grab a few here. Uh, those. And... <laughs> Right. Yeah, keep a folder if you want. Keep bringing these to the class because what these are are actually kind of neat. Um, I recommend if you would like, unless you really love the Bible you have and the study Bible you've got, I really recommend the, the Lutheran study Bible. All of these are straight out of the Lutheran study Bible. That I have a, a program called Logos and I have the Lutheran study Bible notes digitally. So I was able to copy and paste onto a Word document, and I hope that doesn't get me in trouble with copyright infringement. But it's for learning purposes, and I'm not mass distributing it, so I think it's okay. Um, but these are just learning aids. You see, like, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to be talking about that, getting an idea, looking at uh, the picture of... Is there... Did I include... Oh! <laughs> I have more. Um... <laughs> One more. I have one more. This is actually really important. I'll pass these out. These are the pictures of the tabernacle. What it looks like. An artist's rendering of it. It's worth having. And like I said, this is in the Lutheran Study Bible. See, I've got the Concordia Study Bible, but I have those pictures. Mm -hmm. in here. Well, these are nice and blown up so you can kind of see them a little bit easier. The, the, the words are a little fuzzy, so. Uh, because I had to blow it up a little bit, it doesn't do very well with being blown up. But uh, this gives you a good visual representation of what the tabernacle looked like. Um, so, before we get into that though, let's recap uh, chapter 8 um, in Hebrews. Um, so, I'll just go ahead and read through. It's only 13 verses, so we'll just read it real quick. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a 
Minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is since since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, uh, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to, van to vanish away. Now, um, remember what we talked about last time. Uh, well, what did we talk about last time? There were a few sections we really focused on primarily. Uh, which parts were those? Do y'all remember? Yeah, Jesus the high priest, that's what we've been talking about for a while. What was interesting about, uh, like, verse 5? What's interesting about verse 5? About these high priests and what they do in the temple or the tabernacle. What does it say? says, these priests offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Remember what we said about that? That um, what, is done, uh, what was done in the tabernacle uh, was a copy and shadow of what takes place in heaven. That Moses was a visionary prophet. He was shown, he was not only told how to build the tabernacle, but he was shown what it should look like so that he could get it, you know, as right as right could be. And when he saw these things, it, God showed him this vision of what the heavenly sanctuary looks like. And that's what the, the tabernacle on earth was supposed to copy. And that the priests would be doing these atoning works or these atoning sacrifices uh, as 
you know, something that was also being validated in heaven as well. That even in the Holy of Holies, which you, you'll see um, in your picture of the uh, tabernacle here. This is all in the Lutheran study Bible. Right? So, um, and I'll, in fact, here, I'll give you one of each. Um, you'll see that there's the most holy place, right? What was in the most holy place? Right, and what was on the Ark of the Covenant? That is the most important thing. Yeah, the mercy seat. The, uh, the, the place where atonement is made, where God the Most High is dwelling, right? Um, that... Yeah, so that is like where heaven comes down to earth. There's a heavenly realm. <laughs> there was, in the temple, God the Most High dwells in that place. He deigns himself, and to deign means to humble oneself. He comes down and dwells with his people in that place and bridges that gap between heaven and earth. Right, um, which is very interesting, but we see that even when even with something that great, something that grand taking place in the tabernacle, um, it's not good enough. It's not good enough that the law is perfect, but we are not right. We cannot perfectly fulfill God's law. The law cannot perfect us in the way that God desires. So he promises something more. Um, but Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? He takes our shortcomings and he fulfills them himself. He did that not only in his suffering and passion and death on the cross, but in his everyday life, right? Remember when we were talking uh, over Lent, we had uh, the, the three persons, we talked about the humiliation of the Son, that it wasn't, that the humiliation of God the Son, Jesus Christ, was not just in his passion where he was whipped and flogged and, you know, maimed and tortured and then crucified. That wasn't only, that wasn't the only part of his humiliation. His entire life was. He bore the weight of the world on his shoulders his entire life. He was without sin, but sin afflicted him because he knew that everyone that he saw deep down inside, no matter how pious they may look, deep down by themselves hated God. They hated him. And he had to deal with this for his entire life. Right? He bore this weight, especially in his baptism where our sins were conferred onto him and that he carried those to the cross. So now that he has, uh, now that he has uh, completed the work of the law in himself, in his body, he is the perfect sacrifice. Right? He is the one, as the high priest, 
who presents the sacrifice to the most holy place. But it's not a sacrifice of bulls and goats. It's his own flesh and blood, right? That's what we talked about last time. That um, there's no need to hang on to the old covenant. That we see here that in the... Uh, in verse thir- uh, chapter 8, verse 13, it wraps it up very nicely and says, you know, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, this is one of those points in the book where we see that this probably was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Why is that? What do y'all think? It says, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What What could he be talking about there? The temple. The temple. Yeah. I mean... You have to infer it a little bit, but it's not a very big leap to say he's talking about the temple, that the temple worship was still going on. There were those who thought that the old covenant was still valid, that it it was not made obsolete yet, that the Messiah had not yet come. There were still people who would do these things, who would participate in the feasts and the sacrifices and all these things as if Christ had not come as the perfect sacrifice for all, right? So that means that the temple, you can rightfully infer that the temple was still standing and that, like we've said many times, there were those possibly in this congregation who would have believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, but they would have said, but the law is still perfect and therefore we need to continue the sacrifice because... God established it, and what God establishes, it must be fulfilled, right? So there's this this cognitive dissonance going on in some people where they say, yes, Jesus, but also law. You know, uh, that the law must be fulfilled. It's like, well, you're missing the point. Jesus fulfilled it. It is finished, right? So we're seeing... It was hard for these people to understand that. Yeah. And, And I guess the sacrifices stopped when the temple was destroyed? Yes, yeah. You know, I mean, this is what they were taught their whole life, generation after generation after generation, and all of a sudden this guy comes up and says, (laughs) you know, I'm your Lord, I'm your Savior. Well, I don't know about that. Well, you can can definitely sympathize with them because old habits die hard. Yeah. Uh, And, but, and so you can sympathize to a certain point, but I think in some ways you still got to stand firm. Because if people are doing things that uh, they claim are devout or are the right worship, you gotta you gotta be able to at least speak to them and say, "You're missing out." Yeah. Well, Jesus didn't really come out of nowhere either. That's why all these types and shadows come in. Like they've been preparing for yeah. this, and it's like ingrained in them, and they just are not willing to believe what they're seeing. Yeah. Right. So yeah, there's there is this. Well, yeah, and I think also if you understand human nature to be uh, 
built on, like we, we love the trimmings. We like the external trappings of things. Um, like, let's say, uh, <laughs> we like the external trappings of things uh, and we get caught up in what we do more than what's really being done by God in a certain way or how God has promised certain things to be done. What I mean by that is that they've had these prophecies all along. The author of Hebrews has said, look, Psalm 110, I have made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If that ever puzzled you, let it puzzle you no more. It's talking about Jesus, right? Look at this, Jeremiah, where is that? Uh, Jeremiah 31, what's quoted in chapter 8. If you ever wondered what that was, it's Jesus. It is fulfilled in Christ. You know, you've had it all along. Believe this to be true because God has spoken to it. It's not that he just, like you said, popped out of nowhere. That all of a sudden it's this brand new thing and, and we're doing something new and sorry to startle you, but get on the bandwagon or go to hell kind of thing. That's not what's going on. It's like you knew what's going on. You knew in some way. This is what was coming. Rejoice that that day has come. Because it's a wonderful thing. Right? These promises are so much more and fulfilled in Christ and so much greater than anything that could have been offered or it was still being offered in the temple. Um, and we'll see more about that in chapter 9. But that's, these, these are all great points. that It must have been hard for these folks to... to not necessarily turn their backs on everything that they knew, but to shift their perspective in such a way to say that it has not been abolished, it's been fulfilled, but it has been made obsolete, so now we need to move on with these things. But even then, if you look at the, uh, the first council, in uh, the, the first church council that was formed in Acts, right? that they all came in Jerusalem and they were talking about whether or not Jews should eat with Gentiles and observe certain feasts and stuff like that. They were very diplomatic and they said, those who would like to observe certain moons and festivals and things like that, that's fine, but don't say that it must be done by others, right? It was kind of this, bear with your brother who is weaker in the faith by not mandating these things to be done, and also to say that the, and also try not to say these things should be abolished. But understand the new context that they're in, right? That if you wanted to, you could still celebrate a Seder meal. I think on some, on some level, you could still celebrate certain feasts to commemorate the history of the nation of um, Israel. But understand that the sacrifices are gone. Understand that the sacrifice has been made once for all by Christ. That these things take on a new weight. Alright? Um, okay. Clear as mud? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From Old Testament times, they've always been obsessed about the earthly king. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I saw something, you know, that's, that's very true. God, in the very beginning, when he delivered his people into the promised land, said, I will be your king, and I will reign. Um, and in some ways, 
the establishment of a solid temple was not necessarily what God originally had in mind either. He kind of like he he never really brought that up. They wanted to build a temple. They wanted to build a permanent establishment. But God was perfectly fine with it being a tent to show the impermanence of this, you know, kind of this that this will fall away someday and everything will be fulfilled in a new covenant. Um, and yeah, people get caught up in the trappings of the external, you know. We want a king like other nations. And God kept saying, you're not like other nations. Get it through your heads. You're different. I have set you apart. I have made you holy. You're different. But you want this? Know that this is what's going to happen, that the king will take your young men and have them be his servants. He will take your young women, have them be his servants. He will, you will give 10% of all that you have to him. And then you will say, oh, Lord, why do we have this king? And I will not hear you in that day because I told you, I told you so, <laughs> basically. And God, uh, God makes these claims and says, you know, there's more than just what you see going on. Exactly, exactly. Um, but to make another point, you're seeing all these statues being torn down, and now certain radicals are saying, let's smash all of the pictures and statues of a white Jesus because that is the highest form of white supremacy. And we will say, do your worst. As I think I told Alice today, you know, things are crazy right now, but the, the devil may have his hour, but God will have his day. That these things will pass away. Um, but it, again, think about it. If for some reason this, this revolution, this radical craziness comes to Fredericksburg and drives us out of here, will we be content to worship in a secluded secret place like the early Christians did? Or will we be mourning too much for the external trappings of this building? Think about that, how hard that would be, but to understand what's really taking place, regardless of the beautiful stained glass and the nice building that you're in. That's not to say that this isn't important in a general sense though. To have a good place, to have beautiful art that mirrors or gives some glimpse into the beauty that God gives us in his word and in, and in the Savior, Jesus Christ. These things are good. We're not iconoclasts. We don't, we don't worship in a... <laughs> we don't worship in a bare-bones building that only has white walls and a bare cross. You know, that's just... We've never agreed with that as, uh, as Lutherans. So, uh, and we don't agree with that because of how God established his tabernacle with certain things, right? God likes pomegranates, apparently, and he likes the almond blossoms and things like that. We're going to get more into that. So, any questions about chapter 8? We went a little off the rails, but I think we still stayed pretty true to this kind of copy and shadow understanding. Um, any questions on chapter eight before we move on? So, so 
Back then they had to believe by faith. The Holy Spirit wasn't there. No, that. Um, I turned you down. <laughs> the Holy Spirit was there. I mean, you had to be. The Holy Spirit is the only one that is is the one of the Trinity, the one person of the Trinity that is the one who works faith, right? That just be, he's, but he, but he is, he doesn't really come on the forefront of the scene so much until Christ declares that he will come. Uh, but no, the Spirit is always has always been there. In fact, you'll see certain things like uh, with Saul when he. Um, desecrated the sacrifice uh, when King Saul desecrated the sacrifice by um, making sacrifice to God instead of the priests like the priests were supposed to but he did it anyways then because he disobeyed God and he disobeyed his command he was unfaithful it literally says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul right so the spirit is there and he is working all throughout the Old Testament because if he didn't, then we then 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 Abraham wouldn't have had faith. Abraham wouldn't have believed and had it counted to him as righteousness. The promise of the Messiah wouldn't have been anything right uh, that everyone in the Old Testament would have gone to hell because they wouldn't have had Jesus. Some some might claim, but we say no. They had the promise. They had the promise, and they waited. And then Christ fulfilled his work, and they were brought into the eternal rest because of him, right? Um, so yeah, the Spirit's at work in the Old Testament, for sure. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been faith. Because no one could see the most holy place, right? Except for the high priest. And even then... The high priest on the most holy day of the year, which was, which day? Um, the Day of Atonement, Yom, Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur, as some people say, which just sounds weird. But Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they would get the incense and they would wave the incense into the most holy place to where there's a huge, thick cloud of smoke to where the priest would, would, would only be, be able to know just like, Okay, I'm walking in, and then I just know the mercy seat is there. Here's the blood. You know, it sprinkles it really quickly and does what he's supposed to do for atoning for his sins and the sins of the people. Uh, but people couldn't see God's face and live, right? They had to believe by faith. Anytime they would see or get a glimpse of God's presence, like on Mount Sinai, it was terrifying. And... There was thunder and lightning and clouds of thick smoke and fire. And, and the people said, leave us alone. Turn, a, turn your face away from us because we're sinners. Right? All right. Good question, though, Paul. Um, anything else before we move on? We can easily get through uh, uh, chapter 9, verse uh, uh, 14 here. Um, now we're going to get into the actual parts of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and things like that as well. Um, so let me read 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense with the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, lots of stuff there, right? Um, and I felt like uh, this was a good time to really give you a visual. That's why I uh, printed out this uh, picture of the, um, the tabernacle. And you'll see at the top right corner, there's the greater court, right? And this was established more permanently in Jerusalem. That you think that the temple, the temple mount, right, was a really big place, right? I mean, you'll see some artistic depictions there. It's huge. The Temple of Solomon was gigantic. But really, it's this, it's, the courtyard was big. Because that that's, that's where you'd fit the most people. And the people would be there in the courtyard. Uh, focus of worship was toward uh, the, the altar, toward where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then, um, really, the, uh, 
the holy place and the most holy place weren't really all that big. Um, it wasn't huge, anyways. How big was it? It was. Uh, well, it says here that the holy place was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Yeah. And the most holy place was a 15 foot square. Yeah. That's not very big. Not, that's not that big. I mean, uh, about the size of the bed. Yeah. So yeah, like about the size of a bedroom or something like that. It's not very big. Yeah. Have you, have you gone to Palestine? To, have you gone there? No, I haven't. There's something, what happened was when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they cast the stones off the wall, uh, and, and uh, the structure, so like the temple mount is still there, where, you know, you literally have to walk up to where the temple was. And that huge structure is still there, like this big kind of plateau. It's still there. And on the western side is where you see things like the Wailing Wall, where the Jews go and they, put, and they pray and they put their prayers into the wall. The western side of the wall of the Temple Mount is the Wailing Wall, but on the top has been occupied by Muslims. And where the Temple Mount was, they've built a mosque. So... Pretty much gone. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's some caves. Or so they're caves. They're underground uh, passageways. Yeah. That were underneath the temple at the time. Right. And I've seen people try to access them on some of these historic caves. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, the, but they can't, they can't get to them all. They can't get to them all. Yeah, there is a support structure underneath the Temple Mount that was, that was thought to be constructed by Solomon and, uh, and those afterwards and things like that. Because the temple's been destroyed and rebuilt several times, but the Temple Mount, or the temple stood on, because the temple's not very big, because the temple proper, the the, the temple proper is what we mean by the tabernacle. So you see in this picture of the, where it says on the top left-hand corner, the tabernacle. The tabernacle proper is where the holy place is and the holy of holies is. The most holy place. That is the temple proper. And Herod's temple at the time of Jesus, um, this was all pretty, in fact, I'll bring, next time I'll bring 
because there's another there's there's another uh, rendering of Herod's temple, what it looked like. There's one of Solomon's temple, what it looked like. Basically, the only really covered part, totally covered part, in that temple was the Holy of Holies, because it held the Ark of the Covenant. Everything else was a little bit more open air. Um, but yeah, it's gone. It's all gone now. Um, it's been destroyed. Yeah. This, you know, blew my mind here. I, I didn't know what to think. Yeah. I, I walked around the Colosseum uh -huh. in Rome, and Latin had up there with Roman numerals directed to 76 AD. And knowing that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, mm -hmm. you know, this is. <laughs> Current construction. Yeah. During that time. Yeah. And this is what the world looked like. Yeah. And it just, you know, it, it was a, you know, a deep moment. Yeah. Just that it's still there, right? Yeah. And Isn't that amazing? Well, this, I guess this is not what it looked like. Sure. Similar yeah, <laughs> it's pretty amazing what they were able to build in those days, and uh, the Temple Mount when it was when it was there would have been a sight to behold. It would have been tremendous. Uh, um, would have been pretty amazing. But um, we see here that in all these things with uh, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the uh, table with the bread of the presence, right? Um, he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We can speak about some detail about them, but uh, not too much, we're running out of time, but. Um, Who was allowed in the holy place? Just the priests? Only the priests were allowed in the holy place. Uh, and then in the most holy place, only the high priest on the most holy day. How are the priests chosen? How are the priests chosen? You have to be born in the line of Levi. So if you're not of the tribe of Levi, you can't be a priest. Uh, and the only way you can be a high priest is if you are a descendant of... of is if you're a descendant of, ah, man, as if you're a descendant of Aaron. Because um, Aaron was the first high priest ordained by Moses, his brother. Uh, and so it narrows down into that. And the Levites, right, the, the, the descendants of Levi, didn't have their own land, right? They, when the Israelites came into the promised land, the land of Canaan, all the other tribes of, of Israel got a portion of land. Judah got the biggest portion. And then you had the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of uh, Dan, and you know, every, Naphtali and all these things like that. You have the 12, 12 tribes of Israel but Levi doesn't have any land. 
they live in the individual pieces of the tribes amongst their brothers of different tribes, and they have their own little space in Jerusalem by the temple. And they, they don't work as the other w ones would. They wouldn't work uh, like farming. They wouldn't herd cattle or anything like that. They would only eat what was offered by the, by the people at the temple. So you see, like in the tabernacle, you see the, the table with the bread of presence. And the show, that, was, that, was, that was also called the showbread. And that was only replenished every Sabbath. And that was for the priests to eat while they were serving in the temple. Only the priests could eat that bread, right? Uh, except for that time that David came along uh, because he was fleeing from Saul and his men were hungry and the priest took mercy on him and gave, gave him bread and that priest got killed. Um, that's another story for another day. Um, but, he didn't, but he didn't get killed because he gave the showbread to David and his men. He was killed by Saul more as uh, a traitor. But Jesus himself uses that example to say, hey, look, David and his men ate the, the bread of the presence and God didn't strike them down. Right. Uh, so is that unlawful? Yeah, but God allowed it because of these certain things. Um, that's beyond the point. But you see here that these preparations having thus been made, verse 6, right? The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, right? Into the first section here in the tabernacle, in the main part here is where all the regular priests would go who were not high priests. Uh, they would go to the incense altar. This is the place in the temple where, like, Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father, was serving. And he, and the angel came to him and told him that he was going to have a son. That all happened in the temple while he was doing his liturgical duties. Um... And uh, we see here that these, these divisions in the holy, the holy place and the most holy place, the author of Hebrews is using as a visual guide to tell them about the fulfillment that has been done in Christ, right? That um, in this world, he likens the... Um, the holy place, the bigger part, he likens that to this present age. That in this present age, we can only see certain things, we can only participate in a certain way, but beyond that curtain is the most holy place, is the heavenly realm, the place where God dwells. It's right there, but we just can't see it. That's what he's doing. He's using this as a visual aid to say, this present age is not the focal point. The focal point is beyond that curtain which is in the heavenly place. Not in the sky, not in a physical location, but in the heavenly realm, which is where Christ our high priest is. And it's kind of interesting. We've had to supplement Jesus' name throughout all of this like that's because we know that is who the focus is, who the most, who the 
the great high priest is. But if you look back, he doesn't mention Jesus. He doesn't mention Christ really at all uh, since like chapter 6, right? But only now, several chapters later, he mentions Christ in verse 11. Pretty powerful rhetorical skill there. That he is talking about Jesus this, this entire time, not using his name, not using his title, but everyone knows who, the, who he's talking about. And then he finally says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Because what happened, what, is, what does the author of Hebrews say happened with these, uh, these sacrifices of you know, the blood of bulls and goats? What, what good did those do? Yeah, they, they took care of a physical reality, right? That he says, um, uh, yeah, he says, according to this arrangement, verse uh, 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And no, not Luther, but the uh, establishment of the new covenant in Christ, right? So yeah, it did some good. It would uh, account for a sort of physical cleansing, right? but it wouldn't promise a clean conscience. Uh, and that's what really God desires for us, is that our consciences would be clean. Now, pop quiz, because this just popped in my head, where else does scripture talk about having a clean conscience? Probably a lot of places, but I'm thinking of one place in particular. And it, has, it has to do with baptism. In 1 Peter 3.21, which is one of our proof texts for baptism doing something, right? Doing something pretty great, by the way, that 1 Peter 3.21 says, I'm probably paraphrasing a little bit, because, you know, he talks about Moses and the ark and things like that, that all these things refer to baptism. For baptism now saves you, not as a washing of dirt from your body, but as a promise of a clean conscience in God's sight, right? That the ritual washings in the Old Testament, the priests, before he would go into the Holy of Holy, the, the high priests, before he'd go into the most holy place, he couldn't just go in there willy-nilly. He had to go through a ritual process of washing. And he had to be sprinkled with water. He had to be absolved of his sins because if he went into the presence of God without having his sins absolved, he'd be dead. 
strike death on, on the spot. So he had to be cleansed to go in. And now, in some ways, we liken that to, uh, well, how can we liken that to what happens today with us in our divine service? That, well, first of all, we'd like for people to be baptized, right? We'd like for baptized believers to be the ones who, uh, who, when you're coming up, where for us now is the most holy place? It's right there. But the veil has been taken away. All now have access to this place that on this altar... As imperfect as it is, this in this place, this is where God the Most High dwells in the body and blood of Christ for you to eat and to drink. And when you think about, I'll just wrap this up real quick here because uh, there's, there's more to talk about, but this is one thing that I really like for y'all to, to really grasp if, if we can. But you know how we know that we, we believe in a, a royal priesthood. That all Christians in some way or form are priests, right? That we can all make sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to God, right? How did the priests live? I just said that they didn't farm, they didn't herd cattle, they didn't do any of this stuff. They received the bread of the presence. And they would eat the sacrifices that were made on the altar, right? The burnt, the burnt offerings that were made for the people, that would be the food for the priests. So now, we all, as a royal priesthood, receive our sustenance from the sacrifice of Christ in his body, in his blood. Sacrificed for us. Something to think about. Um, and that for that we give him thanks and praise. Uh, it's kind of interesting how when you look at it that way, as scripture puts it, you know, I'm not making this up. This isn't some invention of man. But it's been interpreted and inferred this way over centuries, millennia, by the church. To say, look, the worship, and we'll get to it more in Hebrews, the worship that was taking place in the temple, it's not localized anymore. It's been spread out now, as God really intended it for all people. Instead of all nations coming to the temple to sacrifice and to give worship and Praise to God. God comes to all people. And he comes to all people in his word preached and his sacraments given. In the washing of the water and the word in baptism. And in the, uh, the absolution for sins. And in the... And in the... The eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood. Pretty amazing stuff, right? 
that in little old Fredericksburg, Texas, God the Most High is dwelling here on the Lord's Day in this place. The body and blood of Christ is here for you. Thanks be to God, right? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. We are uh, we're out of time. That's a good place to stop. Um, we'll finish off this, um, get into the last part of this little section more, uh, and move on through chapter 9 next time. Okay? Um, and be sure to, you know, read through the things I handed out. Um, mark them up. Highlight them. If you have questions, bring them next time. I'd love to, to field those and uh, uh, be able to have a good conversation about it because it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, they bring up some parallels and maybe some things you never thought about before when it comes to temple worship and the parallels between that and what happens in our divine services. Okay? So, uh, with that, let's, let's uh, close as we usually do with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 